0: So the course of this retreat, we're going to be um, exploring both the practices um, and, and really they, they come with two different words, but they're really one practice, this, this practice of mindfulness and the practice of loving kindness or the Brahma Viharas. So this evening's talk will be um, on mindfulness, on sati, and then we'll unfold the teachings of the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, um sympathetic joy and equanimity as supports and, and integral uh, por- parts of um, this, these teachings of the Buddha um, as the week unfolds. And so just to, you know, this, to get us started around our experience as a retreat, this is a, just a small passage um, about a meditation retreat in the New York Times. Meditation retreats, at this place at least, are no picnic. You don't follow your bliss. You learn not to follow your bliss. You learn this arduously. If at the end you feel like you're leaving Shangri-La, that's because the beginning felt like Guantanamo. We spent five and a half hours a day in sitting meditation, four hours a day in walking meditation. By day three, I was feeling achy, far from enlightenment, and really really sick of the place. I didn't like the morning yogi job. I don't like the vegetarian food. And I wasn't particularly fond of all those Buddhists with those self-satisfied looks on their faces, walking so serenely like they knew something that I didn't know. Which it turns out they did. What I hated above all was that I was not succeeding as a meditator. Now, you're not supposed to think of succeeding at meditating, and you're not supposed to blame yourself for failing, and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And I love that passage. I love those three last words, especially, because, you know, in this beautiful location in which every need is taken care of, we're so held by the managers and the housekeepers and the cooks and the and we get to see how blah 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 the mind goes and this is actually insight this is mindfulness this is this is seeing how the mind works because so often in our life we just overlook we take for granted and we, don't, we've, we, just, we just overlook that precious, that original preciousness that we uh, talked about in the very first evening of the opening, the preciousness that the Buddha invited us into in this life. We take our life for granted. We take the breath for granted. We've mentioned this, that how often do we um, even give a second thought to our breath until we have a, a respiratory condition or or asthma, or, or an illness. And then it becomes really poignant of how precious this energy is that keeps us alive. How often do we think about our ability to ambulate in the world when so many people have different um, limitations to this movement? And are we really appreciative of the preciousness that, that this body has given to us in this moment? we take so much of our life for granted and, and, and in this retreat, we begin to explore this invitation to recondition this attitude towards our life, to recondition this pattern of unconsciousness, of rediscovering how precious life is, of, of how valuable it is and how worthwhile your life is is in this moment. But really, for all of us, the conditioned pattern is is really not to value this, to overlook it, to take it for granted. Because when something comes up that we don't like, we push it away. We don't want it. We try to change it. And when something comes into our experience that we like, That's pleasant, that's pleasurable. We just want more of it and we'll do anything to get more of those pleasant feelings. So in that push-pull, in that pushing away of that what we don't like and pulling towards us that which we do like, we actually change the moment. We change our reality. This is all a manipulation of our direct experience. We create what we think our life should be and all of a sudden we're living a thought as opposed to a life. This is where that phrase thought becomes reality manifests. It's not the content of the thought that becomes reality. It's that the thinking process becomes our reality as opposed to inviting ourselves to get out of the way of our life and let the life that's meant to be lived to flow. And that's what mindfulness is. Simply meeting the moment for what it is, not needing it to be any other way. That, that gentleness that's as soft as the breath, And so we start, in the small things, we start with the breath. We start with a neutral object or, a, or, or the body. And we just notice the physical sensations getting out of the way of how we think they should be. How the breath should be more calm or how the mind should not wander. And just notice what arises, the wandering mind. And not needing to judge that. And in the moment of not judging the judging mind, you're no longer lost in the judgment. Meeting the moment for what it is, is really meeting all of your moments. The intention to meet all of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that's said to make up each of our lives. no None of our lives, are solely about the joys or the sorrows, even though we might want them to be. Each life has this full range. And are we able to be completely present for all of that? Because meeting the moment for what it is, meeting the experience, meeting yourself, this paying attention to what life is arising is such a profound act of kindness and love. And I know that many of you in the room are parents or grandparents, but even if you're not, we all know as our experience of being a child ourselves, that when you're not paid attention to, the experience of love isn't there. In the paying attention to that, 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 um, uh, that experience of this tiny being trying to make its way into the world, they experience that bond of love. <clears throat> Am I gorgeous? my child asks, drawing the word out like taffy. Yes, I say, you are. The pink and teal dress is probably made of highly flammable material, some chemist's approximation of satin. Pudgy fingers decorate with pink polish, tracing the sequins on the bodice. I love this. A giant pair of bubblegum pink wings flap slowly. Little feet dance in sparkly red slippers. I'm just like a real princess. Yes, I say, you are. Thick blonde hair, blue eyes, rosy cheeks, flawless skin. This child is the American epitome of beauty. This child is my son. He's four years old and prefers to wear dresses. Maybe it's a phase, maybe it's not. Even as I wonder how I produce such an angelic-looking preacher, creature, I wish he would put on some pants and go back to playing with toy tractors, not because it matters to me, because it doesn't, but because I am already hearing in my head the name-calling he will face in, ki- in kindergarten. Many adults already seemed a bit disturbed by the dresses. Strangers utter awkward apologies when they realize he's not female. This culture wants little boys to dream only of baseball trucks and trains. This culture has no room for little boys who want to be gorgeous. He picks up a parasol a neighbor gave him and opens it jauntily over his shoulders. Am I beautiful, he asks. I sweep him into my arms and plant a kiss on his cheek. Always. paying attention is the offering of love, regardless of what arises. And this is the practice of our retreat, opening to our experience with all of our hearts. A heart that is wide open, which leads into that practice of metta or loving kindness, which Michelle will explore tomorrow evening the more mindful attention that you give your experience, the more you are actually offering yourself this profound experience of self-love, allowing all of your life to come into your consciousness and not leaving anything outside the door. So the Buddha offered these foundations of mindfulness that will be unfolding during the week that we've already begun with, with Bhante's um, invitation into mindfulness of the breath. And, and um, so just to give you an, sort of a trajectory of, of, of the week, we start with the breath and then we open to um, other physical sensations of the body, this first foundation of, of the physical um, of the body, of, of mindfulness of the body, and each of these foundations is not—it's not a linear experience. So, even though, in terms of, you know, how we unfold the teachings, there has to be some kind of linear path. Um, they're not meant to be um, um, linear or even dependent on each other, because the Buddha said, if you only focused mindfulness. On the body as your practice, you can fully awake. So as we go from the breath to greater and greater numbers of physical sensations, we then open up to the second foundation which is called vedana, or feeling tone. Because every single experience in our life, regardless of what it is, whether it's a physical tangible one, or whether it's an internal, um, non-verbal one, has one of three feeling tones to it. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Period. And that is actually a practice to, to explore as to where is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Because as I said you know, a little bit earlier, what we tend to do is to push away the unpleasant, want more of the pleasant, so we're changing the reality. And what do we do with the things that are not pleasant or not unpleasant or neutral? We tend to get bored. The mindfulness tends to just fall away. And again, we ignore all these moments in our life. And then as we move further into the foundations of mindfulness, we come to the mind-heart. So in Buddhist psychology, um, the mind and heart are actually one. So thoughts and emotions are described in, in the Buddhist context together. But for the purposes, because you know, in, in the West we have a different psychological framework, um, we, we talk about mindfulness of, of emotional states and also mindfulness of our mental states, or our thoughts. It's just two different frameworks that, that don't exclude each other. They actually, in my view, complement each other. But it's interesting that there is a, you know, there's a cultural difference in the explanation of, of, of our experience. When I remember when my father was alive and he, he was, used to say, I think his hand would come here. I think, as opposed to what we usually do is point up here. And there are hundreds of objects of meditation. So as we open the breadth of 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 um, that experience, we start with a, the single point of the breath. You know, um, with there's a there's a purpose to that, because it begins allows us to settle the mind. And I don't have my. Visual cue with me, but um, you know, I usually carry with me this jar of, of water with some sand in it. And usually our minds are, are, are convoluted with a lot of things that are going on. And being able to focus on one point, this practice of concentration, allows the mind to settle so that we can see clearly. So that we can see clearly. <coughs> who we we really are, what actually is going to lead to less suffering in this life? And as we begin to refine that that ability to hold the mindfulness, we begin to open up to to other objects. So there's two practices, really. One is that aspect of single-pointed focus of concentration, which can be taken into a separate practice in itself. But here we focus for the purpose of insight. We p- focus for the purpose of allowing the mind to settle. So in the landscape, insight and wisdom can arise of, of what is really our experience. And there are some cl- very classic Challenges to mindfulness that we call the hindrances, the things that um, uh, sometimes hinder the clarity, and really they 're just energies that arise that that have nothing to do with how good we are as a meditator, how good we are as a person. It happens over and over again, universally, and so these five hindrances are the sense-desire, the, the wanting, the, the craving mind, and the opposite, which is the ill will, the pushing away, the aversion, the, um, the anger. The next two are also opposites in the, in, and we've already started talking about them, the sleepiness, the, the sloth and torpor, which is the classic language. Or the opposite, which is the anxiety or the restlessness, the, the agitation that comes either in the mind or in the body. And all of you may have felt some of those things to some degree. Because it, it's a natural, these are natural energies that arise. And the fifth one is doubt. Can I do this? Is this worth it? Really the invitation, even when these hindrances arise, is just to be mindful of them, not necessarily needing to judge anything about your experience. Because the beauty of awareness is the awareness of the hindrance is not the hindrance itself. The awareness of the aversion or the anger means that you're not lost in the anger. You're simply aware of it. You're aware of the physical sensations. You're aware of the vibration. You're aware of the emotions. But you're not lost. So often what we tend to do is to feed those states of mind and heart. So, have you ever been angry at your anger? Or depressed at your depression? You know, there's a way in which we can pour fuel on the fire. And so all of a sudden with mindfulness, we have a way of being able to take ourselves out of that conditioned pattern. And we start incrementally and gradually expand, which is the, the template of this learning process. And so one of the practices that you're invited into is the practice of the itch. Because what do we usually do when we experience an itch? We scratch it. And why do we scratch it? Because we want it to go away. And it does go away. But what would it would be like? Because you know that that itch is not going to kill you. <laughs> you think it, you know, is going to kill you through irritation, but... You know you know how crazy the mind is. What would it be like to sustain your mindfulness through the itch and see the other side? It sounds mundane. It sounds trivial. But how many itches do you scratch in your life to make it go away? And some of those itches can be really important in your life in your relationships, in your jobs, in, your, in, in, in how you are as a person in the world. We are training our minds and our hearts to notice the impulse and not need to act until there's insight or wisdom or compassion. Because so often the itch is just done. So I have been a social worker in the past. And I can't tell you when I was in my early years of, of you know, helping folks with, with the best intentions. And I would walk in reacting to suffering that I was seeing and actually making things worse. Because I didn't stop. I didn't notice the impulse and just be with what is in order to know what would be of benefit to this person or the world. Tongpulu Sayadaw, um, who's one of the um, Burmese masters that taught actually in California, said, if you know it, meaning suffering, if you know dukkha, it will break. If you don't know, it will go round and round and round. If you're mindful, we will be able to break a chain of suffering. <clears throat> this is um, a story that was posted just a couple of days ago from Los Angeles. Alan Guay was a standout player on the Compton High School basketball team. Compton High School is in a really intense um, area in, in L.A. And the high school is, um, is primarily people of color, uh, Latina and, uh, Latino and Latino. Um, african-american but when he stepped into the free throw line for a chance to win forty thousand dollars in college expenses he admitted feeling a little pressured he made five out of ten attempts in the competition edging out the first runner-up who who sank four underhanded baskets as she trembled at the line but the 18 year old's next move is what astonished his classmates at last month's graduation ceremonies after receiving a full basketball scholarship to Cal State Northridge, Guay announced that he would give up his contest winnings to the seven runners-up of the free throw competition. Under NCAA rules, Guay could have kept most of his winnings without giving up his athletic scholarship. But, if he, thought, but he thought that others were more in need of that support. He said, they were all smart and all wanted to pursue their dreams and were all having financial difficulties. I felt it was the right move to help others, especially when everything else was taking off for me. One of the runner-ups, Omar Guzman, said, it was a shock. I'm really grateful there are people like that out there. It was generous. Victory Holly, another runner-up, who took a world history class with Gwe last year, knew he was kind-hearted, but she never expected such a gesture. Guey, whose parents immigrated to the U.S. from the Ivory Coast, vows to complete his education and earn a degree. Mindfulness of remembering who we really are and who we really can be, like that 17-year-old. Remembering how to be selfless when the stream of the world is so self-centered and the temptation that the material world offers to us sometimes. Noticing the temptation of the world and not needing to act on it, but deciding what would really be of benefit. another story from the New York Times from, from a more mm, adult perspective. Uh, there, this article was about um, how the U.S. Army is using mindfulness um, to train um, uh, soldiers in the Iraq and Afghanistan war to be preventative of suicidal risk and PTSD. However, this article talks about a secondary benefit. So one veteran of several deployments to Iraq after one of these mindfulness trainings said he was out at dinner the previous night when a customer at a nearby table said he and his friends were being obnoxious. The veteran said, at one time I would have thrown the guy out the window and gone for the jugular. But by, guided by these new techniques, He fought the temptation and decided to buy the man a beer instead. Later, the guy came over and apologized. It is not just about that one interaction that might sound inspiring. It is about how he returns to combat with a new attitude towards his life and his relationships the possibility of how noticing the impulse and not needing to act on it doesn't only change your world, but it changes the world around us, whether it's for the 17-year-old student or the returning Iraq veteran. This training and reconditioning of our mental and physical habits through mindfulness, just remembering the itch, This is where we start. This capacity of mindfulness is just cultivated like a muscle that gets stronger with each time that we come back to it. And so we start with these simple objects and activities like walking. In the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the mindfulness sutta, as Gina was saying, there are four body postures. What, what people don't always emphasize is that walking is the first one that's mentioned. It's walking and then sitting. And so her invitation for us not to treat it as a secondary practice is articulated in the, in the formal teachings itself. And again, the walking practice is an invitation to explore what is this experience of body in motion. There are 26 bones in each of your foot, almost 70 different ligaments and muscles, all moving in concert as you float on the ground, as you're held by the ground. How amazing is that? We walk about 16 8,000 steps a day, almost 1,600 miles a year. My mother is 94. That means she's covered about 154,000 miles. (laughs) That's five times around the earth. That's a lot of walking. And how conscious are we when we're actually doing that? How mindful, how appreciative are we of this experience? Thich Nhat Hanh says, if we're really engaged in mindfulness while walking, then we'll consider each act, each step we take as infinite wonder and a joy will open in our hearts like a flower, enabling us to enter the world of reality. I like to walk alone on country paths rice fields, and wild grasses on both sides, putting each foot down on the earth in mindfulness, knowing that I walk on the wondrous earth. In such moments, existence is miraculous and mysterious. People usually consider walking on water or in thin air as a miracle, but I think the real miracle is not to walk either on water or in thin air, but to walk walk on the earth. Every day... We are engaged in a miracle that we don't even recognize. And like the practice, like the walking practice, our mindfulness practice builds on itself one step at a time. It is transformational, (coughs) whether it's about our personal practice, our interpersonal practice, or our social larger practice. Dr. Martin Luther King said, take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase, just take the first step. That's a walking meditation. It's not about getting anywhere. It's not about, we are so often when we are um, going someplace, we are so interested in the destination as opposed to the process. And so the invitation of the walking meditation is really to focus on the process. And it changes our world in ways that we can't predict. I know that many of you are from Oakland and are familiar with East Bay Meditation Center and we don't have a very large space. So when we have our day longs we do our walking meditation in the streets on the sidewalk and, um, and sometimes with 50 or 60 people we cover a block or two on the pavement in the middle of downtown Oakland doing walking meditation. and. When you, when, when you look at that experience, the city, in those two blocks, slow down. Doesn't matter, you know, what day of the week it is. But there is this energetic influence, impact, that our practice has, and it's beautiful. what what to include. This practice of mindfulness allows us to walk through our complicated lives that often intense issues arise, that we can simply notice the experience and not necessarily default to our first impulse but to recognize the question, what is actually going to lead to less suffering in this life? What will lead to greater happiness? That choice point is the power of this practice that that allows us to be fully empowered to make a choice toward suffering or away. So I came out as a gay man to my parents about 20 years ago. And it's been a really long walk for us. Um, my uh, my mom, especially when she found out the news, um, and this was in the late '80s, early '90s, uh, right at the at the peak of the AIDS crisis. Um, she basically said, "You'll die," because she equated sexual orientation, you know, um, same sex sexual orientation with with AIDS. And she equated that to death. And we had to walk through that. It took several years, actually, for her to develop the confidence that I wasn't going to die, necessarily. And then about eight years ago, when Stephen and I had our commitment ceremony before, um, before the whole marriage issue even came up, um, she struggled with whether to attend or not. And she did, but she came dressed in gray and black. <laughs> Which was not so subtle a message. And, uh, and after that, you know, she proceeded to tell me every single thing that went wrong with an absolutely beautiful day, actually. But she, you know, and so we had to walk through all of that in our relationship. It took a couple months. Last year, I'm with her often because she's 94 and and pretty infirm. Uh, We were watching the evening news and it was the time in which uh, a young 15-year-old gay boy had hung himself in Indiana and how um, the young Rutgers student Tyler Clemente suicided off of the George Washington Bridge. And she turned to me and she said, she asked, have you ever been bullied? And I froze because it's a question that, that, that I never expected her to ask. Or if she were to ask it, it was like, have you ever been bullied? Like, you know, almost dismissively. But in that moment, there was a slight Di- slightly different intonation in her voice. And so I went with it. And I didn't expect to. And I described my experiences growing up and, and um, that they were really difficult and yes. And, and she turned to me and she said, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us? Because we would have tried to help you in some way, shape or form. It was an exchange of five minutes, but it shifted 50 years of conditioning. It, is not, it was not too late for that healing to occur. And that's the beauty of mindfulness too. Healing never comes too late. And for that, I am so grateful for this practice that I can be there with these difficult experiences and see the other side because there is another side. One of the healing aspects of mindfulness is is that we can't change anything we're not aware of. In the unconsciousness, that possibility of healing is not going to happen because we don't have that choice. So in my own story, it's, it's healing that vortex of family relationships that so many of us have, regardless of what the issue is. That soldier's story is about a healing that might have impact in, in something as broad as a conflict between nations. And the high school the young man from, from Compton is healing about a better future for his larger community. Why we get together and practice is so profound. This is not just about our own happiness. This is not just about some personal path towards salvation or enlightenment. Every time we practice together, we are transforming our life we're transforming the lives of people around us, and really the world that's around us. It's not just about our personal experience, but our collective journey and transformation. These teachings raises our collective capacity to be civilized with each other, to hold each other with kindness, There is a direct connection of what you're doing in this retreat with how we live our lives in the world. The creation of peace in this world that so desperately needs it is no different than creating the stillness and peace in your minds right now. And our practice is not some postponement into some unknown future of our freedom it is really creating moments of freedom right now right here and it is possible because the buddha said he would not offer a teaching that was not that we were not able to do that freedom is possible in this life so thank you for your kind attention and many blessings on your practice. Thank you for listening.